Luke 6, verses 12 through 26. If you have a copy of Scripture, you'll find this on page 862 in the Church Bible, and I know, as usual, you'll find it helpful to be reading along with me this morning. Let me briefly pray for us, and then let's look at God's Word together. Father, again, we do uh, call out to you that you would do a great and a mighty work among us. We acknowledge that it's not by might nor by power, but by your Spirit that you build your church your temple, your dwelling place in the hearts of your people. And so, our God, we pray that Christ would be exalted. We pray that you would give everyone in this place eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray that you would make us to hear the voice of the Son of God and to see him lifted up. We pray that you would heal every heart in this place, that you would draw everyone to your Son, that you would make us to see the glory and the beauty of the Lord Jesus, and that you would give us grace to come and to feed and to be satisfied in him. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 6, beginning in verse 12. Now Luke, tracing the early days of the ministry of Jesus, writes, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and at night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out of him. And he healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples, and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep. Now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. And let me just read a little further for the sake of context. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also from the one who takes away your cloak. Do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. And grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, it became a common practice in the 20th century for progressives to try to liken Jesus to a great revolutionary uh, akin to perhaps Fidel Castro and Che Guevara in 1953. Uh, Fidel Castro was coming out of the Sierra Maestra Mountains with Che and all the peasants that they had gathered to themselves, they had taught, they had equipped, and they went and uh, in, after a first failed attempt in 1953 to overthrow Batista and the dictatorship in Cuba, uh, Fidel Castro and Che Guevara 
and those uh, socialist revolutionaries with him finally succeeded on July 26th of 1956 uh, in overthrowing Batista and that dictatorship and implementing what became known as the Socialist Revolution. Now, it became very common, especially in liberal Protestant churches, for people who wanted to promote a certain economic or political theory to try to liken Jesus to a revolutionary. That, that became very hip and cool, especially in the 1960s, to think about long-haired hippie Jesus, revolutionary Jesus, coming out of the Cuban mountains and implementing socialism. Uh, that, that was all too common. That made its way into commentaries and books and articles, into classrooms, into Ivy League academic settings. Now, there is everything wrong with that. There's everything wrong with that. And yet, uh, we are forced, when we come to the Gospels, to acknowledge that there is also something right about seeing Jesus as a revolutionary. Jesus is a revolutionary. He has come to the nation of Israel. He has come to this theocratic people that he has created for himself. He has come to his own, as John says. He has come in the fullness of time. He has been born an Israelite. He has begun the messianic ministry. He is coming to bring to fulfillment everything that the prophets have spoken. He is the long-awaited Messiah, and he is bringing the messianic kingdom. And in that sense... Jesus is a revolutionary. Remember that Israel is under Roman domination. It is akin to its original bondage in Egypt. And at this time, everything about Israel has been defunct. Its heritage has been lost. Its religion has been perverted and has become supremely self-righteous. And the nation itself doesn't know any of the joy of freedom and liberty and the joy of serving the Lord in the way that Yahweh had originally intended for his people. And here Jesus enters in on his messianic ministry and he's healing and he's teaching and people are coming to him and he is garnering a crowd and he is gaining a hearing from the poor and the outcast and the needy and the sick and the wounded and the socially ostracized. Jesus is gathering to himself everyone who is in one sense oppressed, either oppressed by the fall and the miseries of life, oppressed by their own sin, oppressed by society. Jesus is gathering oppressed people to himself and Jesus is showing himself to be the powerful, merciful, almighty savior who came into this world to forgive and to redeem and to heal and to bring about the new creation. It is impossible for us to read the gospel records and not to see that theme of the new creation permeating everything that Jesus does. When Jesus touches the leper and makes him clean, he is making him a new creation. When Jesus raises up the paralytic and says, son, take up your bed and walk, your sins are forgiven you, he is making him a new creation. When Jesus calls Levi, the tax collector, away from his fraudulent, extorting, money-loving, selfish, worldly possessions and occupation, he is making him a new creation. And so it's fitting as we come to this passage this morning and we consider this revolutionary redeemer that we see that he is continuing on in this ministry of the new creation. He is, in a very real sense, bringing everything that he has done in chapters 4, 5, and 6 
to a rich fulfillment in a new covenant community. He is gathering together a new society for himself. He is gathering together the new Israel. He is the true Israel gathering to himself the 12 tribes, equipping them, enabling them to go out into the world to proclaim the gospel and to bring about the kingdom of God through the proclamation of his death and resurrection. And so notice that as Luke uh, enters in on this section, it's very difficult to see the transitions here, you know. One of the difficult things with Luke is that he doesn't always do things chronologically. We sometimes want everything to be easy for us when we read the Bible. Um, you know, God never meant reading the Bible to be easy, and no one has had massive spiritual gains by wanting an, an easy way to read the Bible. We have to work at it. Notice Luke uh, gives us this just basic time stamp in verse 12 in those days he's not he's not necessarily telling us after this then this three days later six days later two weeks later this then this he is amalgamating for us all of these things that jesus has been doing and teaching and they are verifiable and they are ordered and they are put into the order in which they're put for a strategic reason but they are not chronological in order. And so this morning, as we look at this together and we consider the calling of the Twelve coupled with what we call the Sermon on the Plain, and I hope you'll see all these fit together, we're going to see that Luke has strategically done this to highlight for us, first, that Jesus is creating a new people, secondly, that Jesus is showing us a new source of power, and finally, that he is giving us a new pattern of living, a new people, a new source of power, and a new pattern of living. We'll notice there in verse 12, in these days, Jesus went to the mountains to pray. One of the reasons that uh, liberal theologians like to try to identify Jesus with Che Guevara is because Che Guevara was in the mountains and Jesus was in the mountains. Don't do that. When you read your Bible, don't be like, well, here, Jesus is in the mountains. Who else was in the mountains? That's not how you're supposed to read your Bible. But here Jesus is sequestering himself. He is going to pray and in a very unique way. Jesus is doing something he has not done yet and will not do throughout the remainder of his ministry. And that is, according to what Luke tells us, spending all night praying. Now, it'd be easy for me to be like, when was the last time you prayed all night? And you're like, never. Because we have problems praying. And me guilting you into trying to pray all night is not going to change your heart. Prayer is the breathing of the soul of faith. If I'm not praying, there's something wrong in my heart. Jesus was always communing with his Father. He was always making use of that high privilege. And here, in a special way, when he goes to call the 12 disciples you get a sense that Jesus sees the importance of this, that the Redeemer sees that there is need for him to call on his Father before this um, most important of decisions. Jesus is going to go and take from among those who have begun to follow him, and presumably there's a fairly large group. You'll have 12 here, 70 later, 500 at the end of the Gospels, but there's more than the 12, and out of that group that's following him, he is going to choose 12. He is going to select 12 to be with him and to go out 
as the sent ones and the apostles from him. And so seeing the importance of that, and I think there is a lesson there for us that anytime we have any major decisions in life, are we praying about it? You know, that's one of the things I like to ask anybody that comes to me and they've got some crisis in their life. They've got some tragedy or some hardship or some frustration. And I say, well, are you praying about this? Well, not really. Well, that would be the place to start. Jesus goes and prays all night before he does anything. He seeks his father's will before he does anything. Um, he's going to end up with a traitor. That's God's will. This is not meant to teach us that if you seek the Lord fervently, everything's going to go smooth and easy for you. But it is meant to teach you that Jesus is showing us that everything must be heavenward in all of our actions on the horizontal plane. It must all be vertical before it's horizontal. And notice that as he goes out, Luke tells us when the day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. Now, there is a question that you should naturally ask, and that question is, why 12? Why not 11? Why not 14? Why not 20? Why not 25? Why not 50? Why not 100? Hey, the more the merrier, right? I mean, if, if, if we're going to set out on doing something, uh, and, and I said, okay, we need to put together a group of people, and this is the task. We're going to turn the world upside down. That's the mission. We're going to turn the world upside down. How many people do you think we're going to need? A lot. <laughs> Jesus says, I need 12. I'm going to train them. I'm going to call them. I'm going to send them. They're going to be the new Israel. By the way, that number 12 is not arbitrary. Um, Jesus is not just seeking out some sort of um, spiritual uh, synchronization of sorts. It, it is, here is the true Israel. Here is the son of Abraham, and he is reconstituting Israel. Remember, Israel is apostate. They've rejected him. They've rejected Jehovah. They've rejected the covenant Lord. They've rejected the way of redemption. They've rejected the word of God. They are apostate. They were under Roman rule for rejecting God for the many hundreds of years that they rejected him before this. Israel has lost sight of the covenant Lord and the covenant purposes of God. And now God comes to Israel and he comes to reconstitute 12 tribes, 12 apostles. He is not replacing Israel. He is renovating Israel. He is a revolutionary reconstituting the covenant people. He is remembering the covenant promises. He is remembering the covenant purposes of God. He is acting on those things, and he is gathering for himself a new Israel, as it were, when he calls the disciples. And yet he only has 12. We are meant, in a very real sense, to understand that uh, that this, this fewness in numbers, and we'll see the nature of the men that he chooses in a moment, but that the, the, the smallness of numbers is meant to draw our minds back to what God says in the Old Testament when Gideon had his 20,000 men, and he was about to go out to battle, and God says there are too many. And the Lord says, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. You know, this is a principle we don't like in the day of megachurches. We do not like this in America. Bigger's better, faster's better, richer's better. It's better. And the Bible says, no, everything is counterintuitive. Everything that you think 
that would advance the kingdom the most is not how Jesus advances the kingdom. Remember, God cuts back Gideon's people 30,000 or 20,000 to the 300 who lap water like dogs. They're undignified men. And he says, I'm going to get victory with those people. The Apostle Paul will pick up on this in 1 Corinthians 1, and he'll say, remember your calling. Remember what you were before you were in Christ. Remember, not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble are called. God's chosen the weak things, the base things, the foolish things of the world, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Jesus is choosing a small band so that no one gets glory but God for what is going to happen. This is the true Israel. This is the new Israel. This is God's remnant according to the election of grace. Now, it's interesting. None of these men signed up, as it were. Jesus chose them. Um, These are the same men to whom Jesus will say in John chapter 6, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? These are the same men that Jesus will say, to whom Jesus will say in John 15, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. Now that is monumentally important. Notice that Luke draws our attention to that in verse 13. When the day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12. Jesus decided who it was who was going to be his closest ministerial fraternity. Jesus said, I am going to choose these men and only these men, and I'm going to accomplish all my purposes and all the purposes of God through these men. Now, that, um, that's important for many reasons. Um, one of which, and John Calvin makes a huge deal about this, is that uh, the choosing of these men shows, in the words of Calvin, the unmixed grace of Christ. The unmixed grace of Christ. He says, uh, not to any excellence of their own, that they were indebted for receiving so honorable an office. Calvin says, if you understand him to say that they were chosen, who were more excellent than others, this will not apply to Judas. So if you have a problem with the doctrine of election, think about Judas for a minute. Jesus chose Judas to be one of his innermost disciples ministerially. It was not because of anything in them. It wasn't because he saw in them any excellence. Now, this is massively important. You know, I'd never thought about this before coming uh, to prepare for this this morning. And I didn't prepare this morning, but in coming to prepare for what you're hearing this morning. Um, But uh, I heard one theologian say, if you looked out over the apostolic band of the twelve, Um, the only one who you would think would be fit to lead the apostolic band was Judas. Because the Bible says that, um, the Bible tells us that Judas was uh, the most responsible financially. He was the one that cared about money. Remember, he was the one that argued about the use of money. That uh, Judas was the only one that seemed to care for the poor. Remember when Judas said, Lord, this could have been given to the poor. So by external standards, by verbalizing uh, conclusions, we would have to say that Judas would have been the most fit to head up the apostolic band. He was the most fiscally responsible. He, 
He was the one with the plans and the strategies, and Judas was the only one that seemed to care for the poor. Now, by way of contrast, you have Simon Peter, who is rash, who is foolish, who denies Jesus, who is self-confident, oftentimes very self-righteous, and is just plain annoying to the other disciples. And that's the one Jesus said is going to leave the apostolic band, and Judas is the one that's going to betray him. You see, what Jesus is doing as a redemptive revolutionary is he is overthrowing all of our categories. Everything about this passage is about Jesus overthrowing your categories. Whatever you think because you read, you hear what everyone else says, everything the world says is counterintuitive to this. You know, when I was a teenager, it was very popular that whenever somebody famous uh, professed to be a Christian— the Christian community in America got really excited. Oh, the guy from Corn got converted. You know, everybody's going to become a Christian now. No. Bono's almost a Christian, don't you think? And, and YouTube was every Christian's favorite band because they had quasi-Christian lyrics. You see, it betrays in us that we think like that, that we think fame and money and power and giftedness is what God uses rather than weak base unlikely, unassuming, socially uh, rejected people. These are fishermen. These are uneducated men. Uh, In Acts, we'll read that, that when they went out and they preached and people were converted, they said, these are uneducated and untrained men. Well, in one sense, they were right. They didn't have formal training. They didn't have multiple degrees behind their names. They didn't have a pedigree of academic credentials. They were They were roughshod men. Some of them were fishermen. Some of them were tax collectors. One of them was a zealot. Zealots were those that led revolutions to try to overthrow governments. They they were not seen as socially acceptable individuals. And one of them is going to be a traitor. He is is a very uh, greedy, self-righteous, self-focused individual. And yet, these are the people that Jesus gathers around himself. Now, On several levels, that's good for us because uh, by nature, that's what all of us are. You know, that's the irony of the Bible is that those who think they're wise are foolish and those that know that they're foolish come to God for wisdom and gain that wisdom. Um, Those who think they're rich, Jesus says, often have nothing and yet he makes the poor of this world rich in faith. Um, Tim Keller We'll talk about this when we come to the Sermon on the Plain. He'll, he'll speak about um, the right-side-up and the upside-down ethics of the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of Christ. And in a very real sense, this is the, the upside-down way that Jesus works. He doesn't choose people the way we would choose them. He doesn't look at people the way we look at them. That's a very hard lesson to learn. Um, Jesus says in John 7, man judges according to outward appearance. That's that's not a compliment. It's not Jesus commending people. He's saying your problem and my problem are we judge by externals, and he doesn't judge that way, and he doesn't act that way. And that makes a lot of people mad because the Jesus who is sovereign over everything acts in accord with his own desires, his own will. He creates a new people out of an unlikely people. Now, it is very interesting, isn't it, that he chooses Judas. Why, 
Why, if Jesus knew, would he choose Judas? Well, the simple answer is he came into this world to fulfill and accomplish God's purposes, and Judas was part of the eternal purposes of God. The Old Testament speaks about Judas. The psalmist will say, under inspiration of the Spirit, speaking by the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Christ in him, saying, my own familiar friend with whom I ate bread has lifted up his heel against me. Judas is prophesied of in the Psalms. Um, In Psalm 109, The psalmist will say, let another one take his office. The apostles will say that was about Judas. He'll be replaced as an apostle. He would not be one of the foundational stones of the new covenant community, as these apostles are. And yet, notice that he's in the list. And remember, it was Judas that Jesus, he washed his feet when he was in the upper room. He knew that he had a betrayer. Uh, John Calvin when seeking to answer the question, why Judas, um, he gives this very interesting response at the end of a series of explanations. And he says, Christ raised Judas to eminence from which he was afterward to fall so that no one may abuse the honor which God confers upon him. And likewise, when even the pillars or the chief leaders of the church fall, those who appear to be the weakest of believers may remain steady. That was fascinating. That what Calvin's saying is, God intended to give us the example of Judas so that we would beware of our own uh, spiritual weakness, our own ability to wander, our own ability to turn from Christ, and that even the weakest believer would hold fast in the faith, even when they see men in ministry fall. That's been, I've said this to you several times this year and last year. That has been one of the biggest things that's shaken me over the last several years is how many ministers I've known who have had solidly biblical ministries, who have rejected the faith, who have run off with other women, who have done a litany of other things, um, acting in secret and dark depravity. Um, Judas is an example that there would be such individuals in the church. Um, And yet, we're told that Jesus chose him. Notice, very interesting, that whenever the list of the 12 are listed, uh, Peter is always first, Judas is always last. I think that's significant in light of what we've said already. Peter is unlikely, and yet, by God's grace, he is going to be the head of the apostolic band. Judas will always be last because of the Um, disgrace that he would bear by becoming the betrayer of the Redeemer. And yet there is a list of brothers and others in here that also begs us to to ask the question, what about those that we've never heard about? I mean, we know about Peter and Andrew and James and John, and we think about the children's songs, and and those are the most well-known, the the sons of Zebedee, the brothers, the, the sons of thunder, Uh, James and John, and and several of these men are men that wrote New Testament epistles. They are part of the apostolic foundation. They are the new Israel. Jesus is building the church on their writings. Our faith is grounded on these men in their witness to Jesus and their writing about him. If you are a Christian, in the biblical sense of that term, it's because you have received the apostolic witness of a certain number of these men, together with the Apostle Paul, who have written the word of God under inspiration of the spirit. And yet there are men that we know little to nothing about. Um, Tell me what you know about Judas, the son of James. 
Not a lot. He's got two other names. I assume he changed it because of the other Judas. That's what we know. That's, that's all we know about him. Uh, tell me what you know about Bartholomew. Not a lot. Why are they in there? Well, I think they're in there to show that God uses uh, his people, even if they are not the most preeminent in gifts and graces or in that thing to which he calls them, where they're going to be remembered in some sort of big way, but that God takes note of them. That means no matter who you are, no matter how obscure you feel your life is, if you know Christ, if you're with him, if he is working in you and through you for his glory, then you are important to his mission. He takes note note of you. He knows you by name and he remembers his people. By the way, that's the whole point of them listing all the people in the book of Numbers. Please don't skip over all the names in Numbers. No matter how laborious you think it is, God the Holy Spirit has put those names in there to show you that he takes note of his people, even the most obscure among us. You know, we live in a day, because of social media, because of the internet, because of technology, because of the news, because of television, because of Hollywood, we live in a day where we think my life is not important unless what I do is heralded and trumpeted everywhere. And that is patently not true. That is not true in the least. Jesus called all of these men, and these men needed each other. And this new Israel, this new community, this new foundation could not be laid without each and every one of them. And, and there is in this a really beautiful picture of the new community, you know, The choosing of the 12 teaches us in a very basic way that we can't live Christianity on our own. There is a very basic sense in which the choosing of the 12 says you cannot live out your Christian life on your own, and you cannot even live it out with you and your spouse and your children. That's that's the point. Jesus didn't, remember, he's already selecting individuals along the way. Now he gathers to to himself that collective group who are going to become the foundation of the new covenant church. And he's saying we need community. You know, Tim Keller makes this great point where he says, you know, the the desire for community and our, our acknowledgement of the need for community is evident even when we find some song that we like. What do you do when you find a song that you like? You call somebody up and you tell them about it. Even, even beauty and creativity, there's a sense where it has to be shared in community. So the kingdom of God can only be lived in the covenant community, in the visible church, in the gathered assembly, under the ministry of Jesus. Notice that when Luke tells us about this selection, notice what he says in verse 13. When the day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. And, and Matthew will actually tell us he called them to be with him, and then he called them in order to send them. So this community is built around Jesus. Jesus is at the center of this community. They're with him. They're called by him. They're going to be sent by him, and yet there's this collective nature to everything that he's doing. This is the inception of the new Israel, the new covenant church, of which you are a part if you're a believer. All of this is the beginning of your spiritual history. Um, When you read this, 
you shouldn't first say, well, I'm not an apostle. No, you're not. But that's not the first thing you should say. The first thing you should say is, this is what I'm a part of. The Apostle John says this in 1 John when he says, that which we have seen and we have handled and we have looked upon, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That which we have seen and heard concerning the word of life. They were the witnesses. They saw him. They heard him. They handled him. And we put our faith in the same Christ because they are bearing witness to it. And we are participating and we are founded on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, we've got two more things very briefly. There is new power. Um, In one sense, there's nothing that Luke tells us in verses 17 through 19 that he hasn't already told us. Multitudes are coming to Jesus. Many sick are coming to him. We've seen this over the weeks. He's healing them all. But notice what Luke says in verse 19. All the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out of him, and he healed them all. Now, Jesus has brought the disciples with him. Notice verse 17. He came down with them and stood on a level place. Now, everything that he's doing, he's doing with the disciples in order to instruct them. He's been, in a sense, doing it on his own. He's been walking through Nazareth. He's been moving through Tyre and Sidon. He's been going through various villages and towns in Israel. He's been healing the sick. He's been casting out demons. He's been preaching in the synagogues. And, and, and now Jesus has gathered to himself his apostolic band, And as he begins the Galilean ministry, which is going to mark such a large part of his ministry, he is doing everything in front of them in order to instruct them. And the big thing he's instructing them in right here is that without him, they can do nothing. Isn't that interesting? They're with him. And he doesn't say, now go out. He'll do that later. He'll send out the 12. He'll send out the 70. He will send them out to preach the gospel, to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to do the very things that he was doing as an extension of his ministry. He will send them out. But at this point, he is the only one acting, and he's doing it in front of them. And Luke says, power went out from him. Now, I think the takeaway from that is that in the new creation, in the new Israel, among the new people of God, There has to be a new source of power, and that power is entirely from Christ. The very first thing Jesus teaches this new community is that he has all power. Now, he'll say in John 15, 5, in that uh, discourse about him being the vine and us being the branches, he'll say, abide in me and I in you. If the branch abides in the vine, it will bear much fruit. He says, without me, you can do nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. You know, our great problem is we think we can do without him. Our lack of prayer, our lack of commitment to the local church, our lack of commitment to other believers, our lack of uh, seeking the Lord in his word, our lack of seeking to serve others after having sought him, Our lack of caring about the things of the kingdom makes it evident that we think we can do things without Jesus. Um, There's a little place in the Psalms that sort of captures um, life 
in this world with men seeking to do without Jesus. And the psalmist says about all men that they busy themselves in vain. I've always thought that's a very captivating imagery. They busy themselves in vain. You think of shopkeepers and people in their houses and people in the community and out just doing and just busying in vain. And here Jesus is saying, there is a source of power in me for ministry in this revolutionary kingdom, in this new creation that I'm bringing about. I have all authority, I have all power, and it's there for you. And I'm showing you that it's in me so that you would know it's in me so that you would trust me as you go out and seek to advance this kingdom. Well, third, and I want us to just briefly uh, enter in on a very cursory uh, consideration of what we call here the Sermon on the Plain. Jesus is said to have come down from the mountain now. There's a lot of debate about this. Um, is this the same Sermon on the Mount that we find in Matthew 5 through 7? Maybe. Or is this Jesus preaching a very similar sermon as ministers often do when they go from one venue to another? Itinerant pastors will preach the same message and tweak it a little bit. Possibly, probably. A second sermon, we don't know, but Jesus here is preaching this sermon for his disciples, for this new community. He has just gathered this new community. He has shown them that he has power, and now he is instructing them, and he's teaching them that they need to understand that his kingdom is one in which there is a new pattern of living, that his kingdom is different than any other kingdom. Now, the first uh, seven verses is what we call the Beatitudes. And we're not going to go through these one by one. I'll save those for next week. Um, And yet what Jesus is teaching in a very real sense is that the only thing that is really ultimately worth anything in this world is the eternal things. He's teaching his disciples that the only thing of any real value is the eternal things. Because it could be possible for the disciples to adapt a wrong mentality about Jesus. Here, the Redeemer of the world, the long-awaited King of kings and Lord of lords has come into the world. He has chosen these 12 men from everybody on the planet. He said, you're going to be my apostles. You are going to be my foremost ministers. It's conceivable that they would think, okay, we got to get some money. we got to get some famous former grunge band musician. And we've got to get a bunch of provisions together for this mission because this is going to be crazy difficult without all that. And Jesus says, before you do anything, let me explain to you how my kingdom works. The poor are blessed. And he's not talking about the financially poor. He means poor in spirit. Those who hunger spiritually, he will define that for us in Matthew for for. Hunger for righteousness, hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. Those who weep will laugh. And when people hate you and you're persecuted for my sake, you're really blessed. So upside down ethics. It's a new pattern of living. Um, in, In the disciples day, if you were rich, if you were full, if you had lots of friends, if everybody thought well of you, you were the blessed individual. That's, that's the same in our day. It's absolutely true in our day. In the church, in the world, that's how people think. And Jesus says, new pattern of living, eternally minded. We've got to get this time and time again. We've got to get this. That Jesus' kingdom is 100% counterintuitive to what you think by nature and what I think by nature. Eric Alexander as he goes on to talk about uh, the new values here. Notice 
in verses 27 on when he says, love your enemies, he's really teaching them there's not only um, a new set of characteristics, blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, blessed are those who are persecuted. There's a new set of values. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Bless those who abuse you. Um, that's, that's not what we're hearing in our culture. That's not what people tell you. If somebody hurts you, if someone's cruel to you, Eric Alexander says in the new creation that Jesus brings about through the coming, through his coming into the world, there's a total revolution in values. Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. What does that mean? I love this. Does it mean that we go around trying to find thoroughly unlikable people likable and pretend that there are no thoroughly unlikable people in the world? Not at all. There are unlikable people in the world. I might be one of them. What it does mean is that we do what biblical love does, and that is that we put others first. That's a revolution in attitude. It's that revolution that the new creation brings. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain, whatever we want to call this, I sometimes feel like, am I even a Christian? Uh, I think it's supposed to have that impact. I don't think you should ever read the Sermon on the Plain and think, yep, I'm poor in spirit. I'm always hungering for righteousness. I always rejoice when people mock me for Jesus. And man, when people hurt me, I love them. (laughs) I've never done that. I don't think we're meant to do that. I think there's something so revolutionary about what Jesus teaches that we're meant to say, how can I be that? And Jesus says, look, I make you that. As you trust in me, as you look at what I did for you, as you look at how I exemplified that in my atoning death for you, as you see that I became poor for you, as you see that I was mocked and persecuted for you and your sin and your unrighteousness and your lack of love, when you see that I loved you when you were my enemy, when you see that I blessed you when you abused me, when you see that I have done good for you, when you have done nothing but evil to me, when you have seen that I have borne your reproaches, when we see that, when we see Jesus exemplify that in the gospel, and then our lives are transformed by that, then we become more like that. That's the only way it works. So that if I look at my life and I say, you know, I I, I know I'm part of this new community and I know there's power in Jesus that I need, but I just don't see these things being exemplified in my life, then we go back to the cross and we go to the crucified Christ who said these things on the mountain We go to the other mountain, and we flee to him, and we confess our sins, we confess our lack of humility, our lack of brokenness, our lack of hungering after righteousness, our lack of joyfully taking the cross up after him. We confess our lack of loving our enemies, we confess our lack of praying for those who have hurt us and abused us and seeking to bless them, and we say, Lord, make me like you. And remember, he has all the power. The one who had all the power to heal has all the power to transform. This kingdom is absolutely dependent, 100% dependent on Jesus and us going to him 
to get what he has completely in himself. Now, I want that for myself. I imagine you want it for you. I want it for New Covenant, and I hope that you want it for this church, as I want it for all true manifestations of Jesus' church in the world. And so together we go and we cry out to the Lord and we say, Lord, make us look the way you want us to look. Make us to live in accord with what you have done for us. Do for your people what you have already begun to do. You know, Phil Riken said, and I'll leave you with this thought, because this passage started with Jesus praying all night. And Phil Riken says, we are never more like Jesus than when we are on our knees praying that he will send out laborers to proclaim this new kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel into the world. You are never more like Jesus than when you're on your knees. Isn't that marvelous? Jesus had to be on his knees in prayer for this. How much more do we need to be on our knees in prayer for this? Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we acknowledge how miserably we fail at exemplifying Uh, those characteristic marks of the new creation, and yet we thank you that you have redeemed us. We thank you that, Lord Jesus, you have shed your blood for us. We thank you that you have chosen us. We even thank you that you've given us the example of Judas, that we might guard and examine ourselves, lest we be found uh, unworthy of the calling of which you've called us. We pray, our God, that you would be at work in us, that you would renew us, that you would remake us, We pray that you would conform us to to the image of your son. We pray that you would renew us, that we would know all the power that is in you, Lord Jesus. We pray that you would do this for every man and woman and boy and girl here present this morning. We pray, our God, that you would stir us up and that you would fill us with joy in seeing all that you have done through the death and the resurrection of your son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.